This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. A growing number of states and cities around the country recognize today, the second Monday in October, as Indigenous Peoples Day. It's a time to honor the cultures and resilience of American Indians, Native Americans, and Indigenous peoples. Now, Chicago sits on the traditional homelands of the Anishinaabe, or the Council of the Three Fires, the Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi Nations. Many other tribes also call this area home, including the Miami, Ho-Chunk, and Menominee nations. And still others traveled and traded here. Now today, more than 280,000 people in Illinois identify as American Indian or Alaska Native. That's according to the most recent census. Now, indigenous people are not a monolith, and there is no single indigenous story. So here at Reset, we got to thinking, what is behind a story? And what mediums do we use to tell them? We'll talk about language and dance this hour. But first, we'll hear how one Ho-Chunk cartoonist approaches storytelling. His name is Jim Terry. Now, as a kid, Jim had a teacher complain about his so-called morbid drawings. and He's now channeled that passion into drawing horror comics for a living. Today, though, we are mostly talking about what it has meant for him to tell his own story. This is in his memoir, Come Home Indio. Welcome, Jim. Good to see you. Hi, thanks for having me. So you've got a really distinct art style, right? And I really want our listeners to be able to visualize this, especially if they hadn't seen it before. So how would you describe it to someone? Well, if anyone has familiarity with old Mad Magazines, um, a lot of the people that I really respect and admire come from that, and they have this style of cartooning that is less realistic and more exaggerated. And, um, you know, that if I'm, if I have my moment to do something the way I want to, it tends to lean in a more exaggerated cartoony style. And, uh, I like to use a lot of lines when I draw. (laughs) And it sounds like this started early, Jim, right? I gave the example there about your teacher (laughs) thinking it was a little strange. I sometimes wish I could find all my old, uh, textbooks from school because it would be nothing but doodles and defacing <laughs> all around people. the edges. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, mustaches on people. You know, you were that kid, weren't I you? I was that kid for sure. So, how did it feel then to filter the story of your own life through that style? Uh, I don't think I could have done it in any other style than that because uh, it is already terrifying to tell your own story. Um, and to be able to use to lean on cartooning as a, an exaggeration of expression was very – it was liberating in a lot of ways because, you know, I don't, I don't remember exactly what stuff looked like. I don't remember exactly what people how – they, how they appeared. But mm-hmm. through cartooning, it is, um, it is more possible, at least for me, to express the feeling of a moment – more so than the, you know, 100% accuracy of it. It's more like, yeah, yeah, this is what it felt. And you can draw your face melting, you know, or crumbling to pieces because, you know, it's it's metaphor. It's yeah. metaphoric illustration, but it's also just uh, the closest I can come in this particular medium to expressing how something feels. And that's all just watching other people before me yeah. figure all that out. Yeah, I hear you. I, and we'll be talking about the format of a story today, but it sounds like what you think makes comic books unique is is part of that exaggeration and the ability to capture emotion 
in the way that you described. Yeah, it's all, I mean, comic books are essentially an, an arrangement of snapshots, just frozen moments, right? And um, there's no motion in it. You can't, you know, it's a very, very old rule in comics. You can't have a panel with two actions in it. There's no motion, but you can capture emotion. Yeah, and you can you can simulate the, a frozen moment of motion, you know, like an action moment. You know, guys like Jack Kirby were legendary at doing things like that. But, um, yeah, there's there's only so much, but there's also so much more. You know, there's a there's debate all the time. And, you know, comics have a history of being looked down upon as, you know, sort of a lesser medium because it's not really? literature. Oh, yeah. It's not literature and it's not film. And, uh, you know, they started out as just something you roll up in your pocket and toss when you're done, you know. And um, that's why so much of that old stuff is Or some so of us. I mean, that's the part we saved. Yeah, <laughs> That's absolutely. the part of the paper we skipped and we went straight to the comics and that's the part we wanted to, to see. Yeah. there. I mean, newspaper comics were seen in a different way than comic books. I mean, news com newspaper comics came first. And uh, and then they would just compile them. Those were the first comics, were just compilations of the strips. I see. And so most of the people that ended up drawing comics were trying to get into the newspapers, and they had to settle for drawing comic books. I see. Yeah. So talk more about your creative process then. How did you decide, you know, in the memoir, that the scenes from your life that you were going to include? You already said it was it was a terrifying thought to have to tell your own story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Did you know immediately what would get deleted? <laughs> what scenes? No, I didn't. And, you know, there's a lot of discarded pages of moments that either I or my editor thought, OK, I don't think that's necessary. And there are large chunks of my life that I don't discuss because the main thing I was thinking about was, am I being harmful to anyone else? You know, and um, and there are people who I just know would not want to be talked about. So I didn't. And um, and those were like, to me, gaping holes in the story and difficult to talk around. But, you know, I don't want to bring anybody into the story that doesn't want to be involved. That's fair. So, you know, a lot of it is seen from my perspective, probably to an irritating degree. But, um, you know, it's just I can't speak for anyone else. And, and I don't want to represent anybody that I don't want to drag somebody unwillingly into the world, you know? Yeah. You're balancing both art and writing. So what would you say usually came first for you? The art? You mean for the, for the construction of the story or just in general? Because I, Maybe I, give me both. I, I really have always enjoyed writing as well, you know, writing prose. I'm a big reader. Uh, when I was young, if you've read the book, you know, I discovered reading very young and uh, inappropriate reading very young. Mm -hmm. And and so I was always trying to be the next Stephen King, you know, when I was when I was eight or nine. Mm -hmm. And um, and I remember giving a story to my grandmother that I had written about this kid in, in grade school. And she was like, Jim, you know, you're, the name changes from Alex to Jim halfway through the story. And it's like, oh, <laughs> just an early lesson on, you know, write what you know, I guess, being a little too close to home. But I've always drawn as well. And um, when I when I was working on when I was working on Indio, I 
it, it was a simultaneous process. I would I would tell the story in pictures first. I would sketch out the page. Then most of the pages are self-contained, so you know by design. There are a few that run into three or four pages, but mm -hmm. mostly it's just little stories, one page at a time, that I experienced or or memories that I have, and um, I would sketch them out in very loose, you know, just uh, compositions, and then I'd write the dialogue on beside it and put the little word balloons in there and okay and then and so it's there's a lot of levels that go into it uh, a lot of layers before you get to the finished page yeah, it's quite the process yeah um so yeah yeah it was it was a fairly simultaneous uh, drawing comics has always been a sort of a, a blend of those two things because they they rely so importantly on each other and a lot of times the dialogue just ended up being punctuations to what I had already illustrated you've said that you faced some imposter syndrome mm -hmm. yeah. so what got you to the point then where you felt like my story deserves to be told well Honestly, there were there were a lot of things that contributed to that to where I finally said, okay, I guess I can do this. I guess it's okay for me to do this. Um, when I was approached initially for to talk about this book, um, it wasn't under the guise of a memoir. It was it was to talk about my very limited experience at the at the um, Dakota Access Pipeline dispute. And, um, you know, I, I showed up there and I, I went to help and I just ended up observing and soaking stuff in. Mm -hmm. And I was an absolute coward there. <laughs> I, did not, I did nothing brave, you know. But um, I saw stuff and I participated and and I heard things there that really shook me to my core and in a good way. Not And, and I heard elders talk in a way that I had not heard, been spoken to before. And... It really shifted my, not just my worldview, but just how I fit into the world. And so I've, I felt that if I could share anything like that, then it would be worthy to, to give it a shot. Um, mm. But I didn't feel like an ambassador of that situation because I was barely there. You know, I was there for probably a total of 10 days. And uh, the the publisher street noise they wanted to they're they're lying they want to they want to give voice to marginalized people and they convinced me that you know if i start if i if i help out with this story maybe it'll get the ball rolling for other stories and that seemed worthy to me mm -hmm. um, you, you uh end the memoir with your experience uh, at standing rock yeah and um at that point the comic book switches format it goes you know to be entirely written yeah. Why'd you make gross. that choice? Well, the safety of cartooning for me and illustrating my experiences, things that happened to me, is is easy. It's easy for me to cartoon them, you know, and turn them kind of kind of put a layer between me and and the emotional reality of it through the cartooning. You know, so it's like, okay, yeah, this happened, but look at how funny this is. And I never in the process of of uh, creating Indio, did I think that 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 will be respectful to what I experienced there? So I did some spot illustrations and I put some illustrations in between the the uh, the prose, but I really did want it to be more intimate, just straight from me. 
yeah. rather than through a filter of cartooning. So this memoir, it wrestles with the question <clears throat> of belonging. You grew up in the suburbs of Chicago in a predominantly white area. Talk about how that affected you. <laughs> to my absolute core, I believe that. You know, I <laughs> somebody told me recently about I don't know what it was if it was a meme or if it was a book or if but it was it basically said are you really ugly or did you go to an all white high school and <laughs> that was something that kind of blew my mind what does that mean it means that when i was growing up in the 80s uh the people who i saw on tv the people who were cool the people on the sitcoms they all had you know i mean it seemed to be a lot of spiky blonde hair blue eyes uh Mm -hmm. hip. I was none of those things, you know, I, and, um, you know, my situation growing up also informed that, you know, in, in the home. And, and so I felt, I felt ugly. I felt different in a profound way, mm -hmm. even early on. I couldn't identify it as that at the time. I was just like, oh, I'm a freak, you know, but later on I was like, oh yeah, yeah. There's, I, I was pretty much the only one in that school. And, Everybody had their groups, but, you know, so that's why I think I gravitated toward, you know, immediately nerd society, you know, and comic book people. That stuff doesn't seem to matter when you get into, you know, uh, yeah, fandom. Do you remember any specific moments in high school that stick out still? As far as being what we're talking ostracized? About <laughs> Where you felt yeah. like you didn't belong. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it was. It's not like a moment in a movie where somebody you know trips me in the while I'm walking in through the lunchroom or anything. It's more like a thousand little cuts throughout the day, you know, mm. or throughout the the day, throughout the month, throughout the year. You know, um, I didn't realize until later the many many things that I learned and participated in that were harmful to my people just through school like what like thanksgiving cutting out talking about pilgrims and you know all this stuff i was you know i was a kid i made the turkeys i drew the i drew the the buckled hats and all that and i said the mayflower stuff and and i just went along with everybody else it wasn't until i was older that i was like oh well wait a minute you know <laughs> what's happening here yeah, yeah. I feel like, you know, I was like, whoa, I was being programmed. So then what has it meant to you now to connect with the history of your own Ho-Chunk Nation? Well, it's a struggle. It's a struggle now um, because, you know, I I didn't really want to get too heavy, but, <laughs> you know, uh, the residential school system has affected almost every Native family in in North America, you know, and uh, it certainly affected mine. Uh, my mother was raised Roman Catholic, and uh, and so that was my grandmother and my mother, and that in the the knowledge that they had about about Ho Chunk people mm -hmm. was was not passed around in a way that it might have been. You're the son of a Ho Chunk mother and an Irish American father. That's right. Yeah. That adds another layer. That's another layer. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, uh, I, you know, I was talking to somebody about this the other day about, you know, hearing like when I was young, you know, Jim, I don't even think of you as, as not white, as being like a compliment, you know, like I just don't see you like one of them. 
you're you're cool. Yeah, okay. You know, I guess I get to survive another day, you know? So there's like things like that, that at the time was just like, oh, this was like this person being welcoming to me, you know, but it's so deep rooted that Mm -hmm. it's that, that saying like, oh, I don't think of you like I think of them, other people, other brown people, whatever it is. Right, right. Because you blend in with us well enough that I don't notice it after a while. You know, and I was like, you know, the drop of sweat on my forehead. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it. what you're saying is very relatable to, I think, a lot of people um, listening to. I'm curious how you feel about the fact then, Jim, that Indigenous Peoples Day is now, you know, being recognized by more and more states um, and that Indigenous people and their stories are starting to get out there more than those times when you were growing up, for instance. Yeah, I think that it. You know, it's fantastic, and it's and as fantastic as it is, it's still difficult for me not to be a little cynical about it, you know, just because, okay, well, after this day, we will return to our struggle, you know, and that kind of thing. But um, I'm, you know, I, I try to be a half-full guy, <laughs> you know, so to me, it is, you know, the door cracks, and at least it's not closed, you know, it's cracked open now. And and I am personally, I'm I'm so happy about this, this little revolution in storytelling that's happened in Native culture because uh, I'm benefiting from it. You know, I get to read, I get to read books by Native authors now that, that might have just never even seen the light of day. I get to see TV shows like Res Dogs and Rutherford Falls, you know, and, and have that that connecting experience. So any way that it can slip through the door and get into the the consciousness uh, is an opportunity for some kid who's maybe growing up in a predominantly white suburb to say like, oh, wait a minute, these folks look like me. Mm -hmm. You heavily feature your journey with alcoholism and, and to getting sober. Congratulations. Thanks. Thank you. That's, that's not easy to write about. No, no. It's, that's also like a weird tiptoe dance to talk about um Mm -hmm. i know what you mean now when you talked about it being terrifying yeah 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 yeah. um it's personal but also there's the fact of of knowing that this looming stereotype of native americans as alcoholics that that exists it certainly does so how did you navigate that well (laughs) i actually direct uh address it head head on a couple times as me acknowledging the fact that I am embodying a stereotype when I'm in the middle of it, you know, just another drunk Indian, you know, and the fact that that added to my self-loathing and, and feeling of um, worthlessness, that I can't even rise above this stereotype. I'm just another one of these, you know, people that, that are looked down upon as you are the problem. And so... You know, uh, that that's addressing a lot of that's the tip of the iceberg on that issue. You know, obviously there there are there are epidemics happening right now that that don't care about race or anything like that. Yeah. You know, but um, growing up with that stigma and, you know, unfortunately, seeing a lot of alcoholism in my youth you know, just it, it added to the rolling ball of, you know, <laughs> perpetual self-loathing, you know, yeah. one one end eats itself. And um, so I did it feel I, good to get that out into the memoir, though. Uh, well, without getting too specific, it is a part of my life now. 
to talk about my experience with that and to try and utilize it as a useful thing. You know, so the way I look at things now is if I have been through something pretty awful and I am on the other end of it now, it's my job to tell people that I have been there and there is a way out mm -hmm. and this is how I did it. Yeah. You know, um, however successful that might be, but I absolutely do not want to set myself up as an ambassador for any any particular branch of recovery or anything like right. that. Yeah. Uh, but without even trying, you'd be surprised how much your lived experience is helping the next person, for sure. Who can relate, right? Right, right. That's what it's all about. So before I let you go, I mean, tell us what's next for you in the world of comics. <laughs> well, in the world of comics, I'm working on a really wild new book um, called Barbarian, or no, it's not Barbarian, it's called Deathstalker. Okay. It's, it's about a barbarian. Okay. Um, and um, I was going to say, is that the sequel? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, that's a great movie, though. Horror fans unite. Um, <laughs> uh, no, it's called Deathstalker. It's from Vault Comics. My friend Tim Seeley is writing it, and um, Slash from Guns N' Roses is the one spearheading the entire thing. It's, really? It's based on a sort of uh, 80s early 80s, uh, you know, pulpy barbarian film. So you're that, working with Slash from Guns N' Roses. Well, we're not like, you know, hanging out, having coffee and discussing things. <laughs> but this is a partnership. Yeah, yeah. He's involved. He's That's involved. Cool. He's, he, he gives us some thumbs up here and there, and, and it's very encouraging. Um, and I'll be speaking next week at Madison Street Books on Tuesday night um, about Come Home Indio as part of, you know, this rolling movement of this month for indigenous people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got to make hay while the sun shines. Yeah, I love it. Well, Jim Terry is a Ho-Chunk comic book artist and author of Come Home Indio, a memoir. He just shared his approach to storytelling. Thank you so much, Jim. Hey, I really appreciate you having me.